where there's domestic and family violence, home is not a positive place. Domestic and family violence, meaning controlling behaviours, including physical, emotional and financial abuse, occurs in many Australian families. Significant job losses and social isolation resulting from COVID-19 restrictions has led to increased concern that for victims of family violence, who are usually but not always women and children, the risk is higher than ever. There was a clip by Professor Belinda Felber from the Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Besides bringing attention to domestic, family or intimate partner violence in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, she alluded to growing concerns over the risks faced by victims. In fact, these concerns are shared around the world, including in Singapore. More than a month ago on April 10th, the Interpreter newsletter published by the New York Times wrote, and I quote, Domestic violence, already a public health crisis in its own right, is now acting like an opportunistic infection flourishing in the conditions created by COVID-19. This is undoubtedly a crisis for the victims who are trapped in their homes with their abusers. End quote. The writers go on to explore the links in a seemingly unique American phenomenon between men with a history of domestic violence and their later participation in domestic terrorist or violent activities. However, they also highlight how rising unemployment, which increases the likelihood of personal crisis such as losing a job or being thrown out by their family members, could trigger further violence within the family. In Singapore, cases of family violence, child abuse, spousal abuse and elder abuse were documented even before the pandemic. When the Ministry of Social and Family Development launched its Break the Silence public education campaign in 2016, it was reported that family service centres were then dealing with high reports of family violence and child abuse. Now, four years later, amidst a pandemic and a circuit breaker in Singapore, worries over such violence and abuse deserve greater and continued attention. In March, the Association of Women for Action and Research all where, received its highest number of monthly calls from victims and survivors. A few weeks later in May, it launched a new online text chat service to support the persistent surge in demand for its helpline services. From socialservice.se, I'm Jingyao. This is COVID-19 Community Chronicles in Singapore a podcast documenting community initiatives and discussing related structural or systemic challenges. Today, we focus on domestic, family and intimate partner violence before, during and after the pandemic. How should the public understand these forms of violence and abuse? What does help, support and assistance look like? And more importantly, what are the important steps to make sure that policy recommendations and actions on this issue remain priorities even after we emerge from the circuit breaker? For that, we turn our attention to AWARE, Singapore's leading gender equality advocacy group. And I guess to kind of like start the conversation would be, and to set the context of our conversation, how should we define or understand domestic violence, family violence, and 
intimate partner violence. Right. So I think that domestic violence and family violence are sometimes used quite interchangeably. Uh, and some jurisdictions actually make a distinction between them. So domestic violence is used to describe uh, violence specifically between former and current intimate partners, uh, whereas family violence is used to describe violence between family members more broadly. So that's, uh, for example, how Australia defines it. Uh, in Singapore, uh, family violence is defined under the Women's Charter um, and covers relationships between spouses, former spouses, children, parents, in-laws and siblings. But notably, it does not cover intimate persons who are not and have not been in a marital, uh, in a marital relationship before. Um, neither does it cover people living in the same household but do not share a familial relationship, so for example, domestic workers. As for the forms of violence, um, domestic violence can be physical, verbal, sexual, psychological, and so on. So victims may experience acts of physical violence such as being punched, kicked, uh, choked, etc. Um, or sexual uh, assault or harassment, uh, insults and threats and humiliation. Uh, and, uh, abusers often exhibit controlling behaviours um, such as monitoring or limiting their victims' movements, their relationships, their activities um, in an attempt to isolate them from being outside. They may also deny them of food, water, and sleep. And some of these forms of violence are explicitly recognized under the Women's Charter. So, um, sh should, I, should, I should I describe how the Women's Charter defines? Sure, yeah, go ahead and enlighten uh, so, us. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So, the Women's Charter definition would include uh, willfully or knowingly placing or attempting to place a family uh, member in fear of hurt, causing hurt to a family member by an act uh, which they ought to know would cause and result in hurt wrongful confinement and restraining of a family member against their will, uh, and continual uh, harassment with the intent to cause anguish to a family member, including verbal abuse, psychological, or emotional abuse. So such violence, um, uh, regardless of the, the exact forms, would uh, leave behind very serious long-term impact on the uh, victims and their families. Um, they can exacerbate health issues, they can threaten lives and livelihoods, um, and have very damaging physical, emotional, and psychological effects. What, and given that you mentioned, you know, the different forms of violence and then mentioning the effects and the impact that such forms of violence can have, I guess the main headline that AWARE has been kind of like bringing forth is that since March, in March, in fact, um, the association received, I think, 619 calls, which includes WhatsApp messages, emails, walk-ins and referrals, which is your highest ever number of calls. And I guess maybe to put this into context would be before the pandemic, so before this surge in uh, number of calls, what were the usual issues that were raised through your helplines or through your hotlines um, before the pandemic? Um, so before the pandemic, uh, uh, okay, so um, to contextualize a bit, this is a women's helpline and it's uh, marketed as a helpline for women who are in distress. So women would call um, usually with uh, questions about divorce or they're contemplating divorce, they're going through divorce, they have a lot of questions and a lot of anxieties around the process and the outcomes. Um, family violence also surfaces as one of the issues that uh, a lot of women callers would, would bring up. Um, so I would say these are basically the two main types uh, if, we have to, if we have to define it really broadly. Um, so just to share a bit of uh, uh, more updated numbers. So since then, uh, last month in April, we've received uh, 596 calls, again, um, including WhatsApp messages, emails, referrals, etc. Um, and about one in five of these cases relate to family violence. Um, so if you compare the numbers from April this year to April from uh, April last year, we have seen a 112% increase in calls relating to family violence specifically. 
um, and as a proportion of all calls, family violence uh, calls have also increased from 11% to 20%. So they used to only make up around 1 in 10 of all calls uh, during the same time last year, but now it, is, uh, it has become 1 in 5. Yeah, so just overall, there's, there's just been an increase in, in calls relating to family violence. So yeah. Um, yeah, they are usually calling to seek support for emotional and psychological distress, violence and abuse, um, including all the various forms of abuse I've mentioned. Um, and uh, to give some concrete examples, some are calling because they are suffering from anxiety or having difficulty coping with the mounting pressures of work and caregiving for their families. Um, others are calling because they, uh, their usual refuge of, uh, from domestic violence, for example, their workplaces or friends' houses are no longer open to them, so they are unsure um, as to what they can continue uh, or how they can continue living with their abusers at home. Uh, and we also have many calls, uh, are, many callers who are calling on behalf of their friends or relatives or neighbours um, who are in violent, uh, domestic violence situations and cannot seek help for themselves, so they are calling us for advice. Yeah, um, uh, just to give a few more examples, one caller uh, reported that her verbally abusive husband was preventing her from seeking in-person counselling. So uh, while he claimed that this would prevent her from being exposed to the pandemic, the practical impact was to increase, uh, was to basically contribute more to her isolation. So she has been feeling anxious and frustrated and uh, even suicidal due to the situation. So I guess one of my kind of like immediate follow-up would be if you receive a call that's from a neighbor or someone who is who's who might not be a victim but trying to seek help for someone, what's the advice that would be given to someone like that who's calling and concerned about a neighbor or a friend or family member who might be a victim of abuse? So Okay, so um if, okay, if it's, uh, if it's someone else who's calling us, yeah. uh, we will let them know that first it's important that we, uh, okay, so for example, if the, the victim is actually confided in this neighbor or this friend or family member, it is important that uh, we listen without any judgment and let them know, let the victim know that they're not alone uh, and that regardless of their circumstances, uh, they do not deserve to be abused. So that's usually the first thing that they, they should say, uh, just reassure them that, you know, you have our support, etc. Um, we should also respect their decisions uh, and understand that uh, often the family members who are facing violence are commonly uh, economically dependent on the offender and that it's not easy for them to, to leave uh, their homes or the relationship. So, but on the other hand, if they do decide to leave their home or have decided to do so, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't stop them. Um, and if the caller feels comfortable or if we feel comfortable, uh, we can also help to discuss a safety plan and identify what resources and options the victim has. So uh, we can offer information uh, on available resources such as helplines or FSCs, uh, or offer to help call the police or family violence specialist center, or to uh, accompany them to the police or the hospital or crisis shelter. Yeah. yeah. And I guess in a more serious situation where really the victim has no access to a helpline, for instance, she or he can't call in, for instance, then um, are there other recourses or are there other services that AWARE currently provides that might speak to that? Um, hmm. might be a bit difficult to answer because I'm not I'm not a helpliner, uh, yeah. so I I don't have direct experiences uh, supporting uh, callers. But um, if it's really an emergency situation, I emergency situation, I believe that they would usually uh, they might advise them to call the police or the hospital. Yeah, I mean, I'm not very sure. I don't need to check. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, and I also understand because I asked that because um, we had the conversation and I think uh, Away also shared that because of the search and demand, um, you've had um, a new WhatsApp service as well. And yeah. just tell me more about how the WhatsApp service works. Okay, yeah. So um, just last week, we launched an online chat service, uh, text chat service for women in distress. So you can now schedule a 30-minute appointment to chat with a trained staff member or volunteer. Um, so during the chat, uh, aware representatives uh, would perform the same support functions as on the helpline. So they can provide emotional support and practical information or make referrals to uh, counseling services uh, and also to the legal clinic and also advice on other helpful resources. So uh, appointments can also be made on our website during uh, the Women Helpline hours, which is Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. except on public holidays. Mm -hmm. that gets, that's help. I think that helps us because I think a lot of things you've mentioned and I was kind of noting them down as well in terms of um, this threat of isolation and women in distress and it creating emotional anxiety and that especially when victims have disproportionate economic dependence on their abuses in that sense. So I guess for most of us, we might intuitively understand how the isolation and the stay-at-home orders in Singapore, you know, might increase the risk, incidence, and harm of these forms of violence. So um, could you briefly explain the links between pandemic-induced isolation and such forms of violence that uh, might be suffered by victims? Right. So uh, abusers may seek to... Uh, may seek a sense of control um, when their lives are being disrupted or when the circumstances are very uncertain. So this might trigger them to lash out at, at those around them. Uh, and there have been studies that link unemployment and economic hardship uh, in, at the household level to abusive behaviour. So we can expect such uh, uh, incidences of domestic violence to increase uh, during this time when a lot of people have lost their jobs, uh, their economic circumstances are uh, uncertain. Um, so yeah, during a pandemic like this, um, women are forced to stay at home uh, even more than usual. So they start have to spend a lot more time around their abusive partners uh, and be exposed to harm more than often. Uh, and being at home all the time may also impact their help-seeking behavior. So they may not have sufficiency privacy. So uh, sorry, they may not have sufficient privacy uh, from their abusers to call the helpline or to access other forms of services. Um, they may also worry about exposing others to the virus um, and so they can't physically leave the house and seek refuge elsewhere, for example, with their friends or other family members. Um, and finally, um, the financial crisis that uh, come out of uh, such a, such a uh, situation also tend to make it harder for women to escape um, the abusive domestic situation. So, because a key step um, to doing so is to establish financial independence. So uh, they may not be able to do so if their employment is, uh, has been impacted by, uh, by the recession. Mm -hmm. And I guess the, I guess my next curiosity would be these forms of um, abuse and violence have existed even before the pandemic. The pandemic just showed them up in that sense. And you spoke um, eloquently about the different um, services that AWARE has right now. And these are important kind of remedies. But I guess on a broader um, level of the society or community with policies in Singapore, what do you think are some of the structural changes that we should be advocating in that sense of, not just in the context of this pandemic, but after the pandemic, what are some of the structural changes that 
you know, we should be campaigning or advocating for. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, domestic violence uh, and a lot of other issues, for example, employment, housing struggles, low-income uh, families, and the precarity of casual gig workers, these are all uh, issues that existed long before the pandemic and they're not going to go away anytime soon. So it's unfortunate that it takes a pandemic for these issues to find a larger footing in national discourse. Um, so moving forward, I think uh, apart from considering how our economic and social uh, and labor policies need to shift, um, it's also crucial for authorities to and the public to pay more attention to advocacy groups and more importantly, the people um, who are from vulnerable communities themselves who are often left out of the conversations about how their experiences, oh, sorry, about their experiences and also uh, having decisions about their lives made for them. So I think that they, they need to be included in the, the conversations moving forward directly. Um, so more support needs to be given to up, more upstream work of uh, research and advocacy um, before, to, to tackle the problems before the dam breaks, so the SSA. And on domestic violence specifically, um, I think we can afford to commit more resources towards public education, uh, public awareness, sorry, uh, and support for survivors, rehabilitation, and prevention. So to start with, uh, family violence is defined under the Women's Charter could be expanded to include more types of intimate and domestic relationships uh, and explicitly recognize more types of violence and abuse. Um, we also need to pay uh, uh, attention to the particular vulnerabilities that some groups of women would face. For example, uh, foreign spouses who are married to Singaporean uh, and who are living in Singapore. So many experience violence at the hands of the very people that they have to depend on to stay in the country. Um, and as long as they can, uh, as long as they are married, they need the, the, the citizen spouse to renew their long-term visit pass in order for them to continue staying in the country. So as a result of this, uh, victims may be forced to make a decision between staying in Singapore where their children, where their family uh, are, uh, or escaping an abusive relationship. So to prevent this, I think, I mean, we believe that those experiencing violence uh, should be allowed to find another Singaporean sponsor to sponsor the, or sponsor the path themselves. So they don't have to depend on the person who's abusing them to, uh, for their right to, to reside in the country in the long term. Yeah. yeah. And it's a nice compliment because it's kind of like talking about hearing lived experiences, both advocacy groups and of course of victims and survivors, that's one. And the other part, which is the public awareness part of it, which is kind of complementing one another. And I guess that also brings to mind the fact that AWARE is involved in so many programs and services. And um, I guess my next question will be in, in this period itself, especially from the transition from DOSCON Orange to the Circuit Breaker to the different services you're offering right now, What's been most challenging for you and the organization in managing um, during this period? Right. So I would say that um, certainly our Women's Care Center, which is uh, the, the team that's in charge of running all our counseling services and direct support services to women, uh, are, did probably face the most logistical challenges because uh, their work depended so much on uh, uh, physical and face-to-face -face interactions. Whereas for the research team, for example, I mean, yes, we also conduct interviews that require us to see people, but uh, it was slightly easier for us to move away from that and just kind of conduct over Zoom or over the phone, for example. So um, some of the logistical challenges uh, uh, involved in uh, moving our services offsite and shifting them online um, included, um, you know, figuring out the new technology in a very short period of time. Uh, so they, the team had to uh, compare different options, get to train staff, we had to, and a large pool of volunteers on the new technology, um, craft new SOPs um, and keep but at the same time, also keeping in mind the, the ease of use and uh, accessibility for clients as well. Um, 
The second thing was to pull, uh, pull together a, a, a volunteer resources uh, in a short amount of time and adjusting their scope of work to what is needed. Uh, and finally, also to just keeping, uh, just keeping up with the changes and restrictions. So I think for, I think uh, just in the last few weeks, um, we, we noticed that the instructions from the government changes every couple of days. So um, our SOPs also have to, have to, have to change according to what is uh, now a new, a new rule or new policy. So, uh, and then once those things change, volunteers have to be retrained again, etc. So uh, there was a, really, it was quite a logistical nightmare, I would say. Yeah. And I guess more personally as well, how has the experience been for you in terms of transitioning to this online? Yes, it's research work, you can do it remotely, but across the transition, the resources, the volunteer resourcing, and then changes in um, restrictions as well, how has it been for you in terms of the um, working from home experience? Right. Um, so I guess AWARE is quite uh, forward thinking, slash, we are quite lucky in the sense that even before the pandemic um, in the last uh, year or so, we have implemented a work from home day for all staff members. So uh, every week, uh, staff members will work from home once a week. Um, it, it's something that we already were already practicing. So um, yeah, I guess when we shifted to working from home five days a week, it made, um, it did take uh, some time to get used to, uh, but our team also had weekly check-ins where you know, during lunchtime, we would all meet online and just share how we're doing, what coping mechanisms we have uh, to, to cope with the changes. Um, for myself personally, yeah, I think I, I took some time to really adjust um, because I, uh, as much as I like to work alone, I also like to interact with my colleagues and friends. So, uh, you know, it, it, uh, and, and I think the kind of work that we do might sometimes feel a bit isol isolating in the first place just because you are um, trying to work on issues that nobody wants to care about or people have very differing opinions on. So um, having, having that support system from colleagues and friends is really important to me. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I'm kind of used to it now. Um, I would say that conducting uh, interviews without seeing the person uh, was a bit of a challenge. Um, I, 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 I mean, I think building rapport with the respondents is very is a very important part uh, of the interview process, and uh, being able to see them and show you know like your facial expression, expressions and empathizing and uh, uh, kind of reacting uh, uh, visually to what they're saying is very important. So that that was a bit of a challenge, um, yeah, because we've had to move a lot of interviews over phone. Some people uh, don't have access to technology that allows them to do uh, Zoom interviews, for example. So we just had to call them and, and do the interviews. Uh, yeah, so these are some, some changes that we've had to adapt to. Thank you for sharing, because I think that's interesting. And everyone is going through, not everyone, everyone is going through the circuit breaker, but experiences are so diverse and varies based on, as you said, the workplace environment and office. So that's really interesting to hear. And I guess on that note, the final point will be, and I, you might have alluded to some of these, which is, for anyone who's listening to this and wishes to provide support um, to victims and probably even more broadly to aware, um, how and how can they do so? Right. So, um, yeah, I, I did uh, uh, um, kind of mention this just now. Uh, I think that as uh, friends and uh, family members and colleagues to people around us, we, might, we, we are all potentially allies to uh, victims of domestic abuse. Um, so, apart from... Um, uh, wait, what I want to say today, sorry, same thing. Oh yeah, so um, yeah, it's important that if 
someone does confide in you, you uh, listen to them without any judgment uh, and try to offer support where you can. And if you can't uh, offer support yourself, do direct them to existing resources and services that provide such support. Um, and also, kind of, I, I think it's important to be mindful of your own capacity to offer support as well. Don't overpromise. Don't say that you, you are there 24-7 for someone um, and then you can't live up to that because it, 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 might, it might make the victim feel like, oh, you know, I, I can't depend on this person and they might feel a bit more isolated. So uh, it, I think, I think that, that is important when you are offering support to people. So um, yes, more generally, you can also support AWARE's work um, by contributing to the uh, Vulnerable Women's Fund. So we have an ongoing campaign on Gift.Asia, which um, to date has already received more than $200,000 in donations. So we have been very encouraged uh, by this and very grateful uh, for the support because it shows that many of you out there understand that women, um, you know, whether we are dependents or uh, as parents or survivors of uh, abuse, etc., need support and that um, you want to contribute to supporting them. So. Uh, by contributing to the fund, you will uh, your contribution will go towards first uh, the women's helpline and the sexual assault care center, which supports women in crisis with counselling and support groups and legal clinics. Um, the second thing that you will contribute to would be our support uh, housing and enablement project shelter. So, uh, yeah, project sorry. So uh, which provides uh, ten low income single mothers and their children with up to two years of free housing. Uh, and finally, you also contribute towards research and advocacy work, um, which identifies challenges that marginalized communities face, uh, and, uh, and, and then we actively advocate for structural changes to make everyone's life better. Yeah. And that's it for our episode today. Thank you to Ning Tian, and thank you, the listener, for joining us. Please also share other initiatives or issues which you think should be highlighted. Email me at sppkjy at nus.edu.sg. That's sppkjy at nus.edu.sg. You can also subscribe to the newsletter and the podcast at tinyletter.com slash socialservicesg. Thank you very much and see you next time.